Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 7th, we are studying Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Jesus goes on trial before Pontius Pilate. The injustice against the innocent one continues to grow and to climax, and yet Jesus allows it. Jesus directs it, in fact, to accomplish justice, to give justification to sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Joel Hawk. Pastor Hawk serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. It's good to be with you today. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hawk, give us some context here in Matthew's Gospel. We're jumping in to chapter 27. What do we need to know about the context that's going to help us as we dig in today? Yeah, like you said, we're at the climax of the whole story of Matthew, certainly the whole gospel narrative that he's uh, put together by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you know, but especially at the climax of the 12 hours that began with the Last Supper, um, the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room, uh, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, his betrayal and arrest, um, his trial before Caiaphas and the, the Sanhedrin, uh, and all that kind of drove him uh, to, uh, to be delivered to uh, to Pilate uh, here in our text. And, and like you said, right, Jesus knew where this is where everything was heading. He, he predicted it three times in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so while we're, we're going to discuss a lot that, that looks at this scene from a human perspective, human motives, um, you know, as you mentioned, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that Jesus isn't just a pawn caught up in a tragedy here. He, he could have called for legions of angels at any point. He, he makes mention of that. He's, he's willingly walking this path uh, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled, uh, so that he could win forgiveness and eternal salvation for us and for the whole world. I mean, nothing less than the will and plan of God um, is behind Jesus going to the cross, even as he you know, works here through human history, human people, human motives. Um, and events to to do things according to his plan um, and his foreknowledge. That's one of the the key themes in Matthew's gospel to see how Jesus is in control, how he's directing events. He knows what's going to happen. He's planned for it to happen, and he he allows it to happen so that he can accomplish salvation for sinners. And it it does create quite a few moments of irony during these last chapters of Matthew, particularly chapters 26 and 27. And and we'll continue to see that irony in today's text as, as people think that they are accomplishing something that maybe God doesn't want to happen. And yet all along, this is the will of God for our salvation. So let's go ahead and read the text then. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 
That's our text for today, Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Pastor Hawk, at the very beginning of our text, you've got Jesus standing before the governor. This governor is Pontius Pilate. We met him in yesterday's text. He, he gets introduced at the very beginning of the chapter before this interlude with Judas's uh, suicide. And he comes back into play here. So we talked a little bit about him yesterday. Remind us who we're talking about. Who is this governor? What do we know about him historically, biblically speaking? Uh, yeah, and uh, historically speaking, outside of the scriptures, uh, we don't know a whole lot, but we do uh, know, uh, you know his position. We do know um, likely his status and uh, um, a little bit about uh, you know, why he's uh, kind of you know, human, humanly speaking in charge of this situation. Um, if you think back to the beginning of, of Matthew, the beginning of the Gospels, uh, someone named Herod the Great is reigning um, in, uh, in the area of Judea. Uh, and uh, then, then he has a son, Archelaus, whom we also meet at the beginning of, uh, of the text. And uh, that, that king, Archelaus, was removed by the Romans um, in about 6 AD, six years after Jesus' birth or so. Um, and, and Judea and Samaria were then placed under the direct Roman rule of uh, what are known as the prefects or governors um, in our text. And Pilate was the fifth of these. And he, um, he ruled, he held sway for at least 10 years, perhaps as many as uh, 17 years, a fairly long and relatively stable time. Um, he seemed to be able to generally work with the Jewish leaders there, especially the high priest uh, Caiaphas. Uh, he himself was likely, uh, you know, just a lower Roman nobility. Maybe had a background of military service. Um, but uh, as this prefect or this governor, um, he would have had almost absolute authority um, in this territory. Of course, you know, limited by the number of troops uh, that he had at his disposal and other realities there. But but he was the exerciser of Roman power. He represented the emperor and the might of Rome to the Jews and all the all the people um, in the region uh, there. So. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to delegate this uh, this authority to uh, to judge the, the capital cases, uh, and uh, yeah, he, he was he was the power at the you know power to be there. So um, that's uh, that's who Pilate is. Uh, we don't know a whole lot more than that um, for sure. Uh, we we do uh, know or believe that uh, that Pontius is actually a tribal or clan name. Pilate is a family name. Um, so so you know the first name like like mine is Joel. You know we don't even. Uh, perhaps know that for sure. Some some traditions have been handed down to us, but uh, um, again, the, the big thing here is he's the governor, um, this prefect, and he's he's in charge as far as Rome is concerned. Yeah, the the thing about his name is is interesting. I think that typically, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, typically there were three names that a Roman would be known by. Like you said, you would have a tribe name, a family name, and then your your personal name. And it seems that for Pontius Pilate, his his personal name is what we don't actually know. And maybe by not giving us that, is that, I don't know if maybe that's saying something about the role Pilate plays here or not. Am I right about that with the names, Pastor Hawk? Um, yeah, you're right about the, the, the names with the, with the three names that, uh, that many, many Romans uh, went by, especially these Roman uh, citizens, um, especially um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, Matthew divinely inspired is, is trying to make a point that way that, uh, um, his name, or you know, helping us focus on his uh, position. Uh, you know, might be reading back into things, uh, you know, a little bit. So I don't want to do that, but uh, but certainly, uh, you know, we don't want to focus on on Pilate. We want to focus on on the one standing, uh, you know, trial before him. And yet, certainly, Pilate is playing a pivotal role um, in in the story as it unfolds. Certainly, certainly, and I I think it. I, again, if this is reading too much into it, I. I... I would apologize for that, but I, I do wonder, Matthew, it's telling, I think, in this particular section, that he doesn't use Pilate's name that much. Rather, he continues to refer to him as the governor. Rather than using his name, he uses his title. And, and I just, I can't help but wonder if, if Matthew invites us to reflect on, on the fact that this governor refuses to govern, the one who should give justice refuses mm. to actually give justice, all along, as you said, and, and never forgetting what you're saying, that that this is right. all being directed by our Lord. But just maybe, a, a, I don't know, those are just some of the thoughts that I have on, on Pilate. We can continue to reflect on on that as we continue to see Pilate and the way that he acts and the way that he ends up, I mean, he's the one person named in the creed as responsible for this. Now, and we'll talk about who really is responsible, I know, but Pilate gets that naming in the Apostles' Creed, and so maybe a bit of reflection is in order for that. So as we as we continue, then 
what we're seeing here, this is a, a trial. It's a picture of a trial. And this is the second trial that, that Jesus has gone through so far in his passion. He's, he's been under trial by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Now they bring him to the Romans in order to put him to death. Because as you, as you said, Pilate is the one that's got that authority. So, so take us through the, the trial. What are we, we going to see as we walk through this text? Uh, so yeah, we're going to see again. Yeah, Pilate, uh, and I think your your point there well taken. You know, the governor not uh, fully willing to govern yet, uh, still seeming to do all things you know within his purview, within his uh, uh, realm and authority. And it's helpful for us to to remember as we look at this you know quote unquote trial in in our eyes uh, that most Roman law only applied to official citizens. Uh, you know, we think of citizenship today in the United States as hey, I'm I'm born in the United States and I'm a U.S. citizen. Uh, right? But that's not the way Roman citizenship worked. It, uh, a citizen was mostly from a highborn family, a highborn class, had very special rights and privileges. Um, later in the New Testament, uh, we'll see uh, the Apostle Paul making use of the fact that he was um, a Roman, Roman citizen. He had uh, Roman citizenship. Uh, Jesus certainly was not a Roman citizen. He was, a, a, you know, from, from an earthly perspective, a Galilean Jew of, of lowly birth and status. And so whatever Roman law you know, was or wasn't there, uh, Pilate would have been free to use it uh, you know, as, as much or as little as he wanted to try to govern things, to try to get a handle um, on this situation. Uh, you know, all that was there was his sense of right and wrong, his uh, willingness to try to balance all the competing interests in play, um, again, from an earthly perspective. Um, and so, yeah, while this seems like a sham trial to us in a lot of ways, um, you know, this, this would have been well within... Uh, what someone may have expected if they weren't, again, a Roman citizen um, if they came uh, before the governor. It doesn't make it less, less unjust, perhaps, but it's not like it's doubly so that a pilot went outside of the law um, in dealing with Jesus. Um, this was, again, perfectly no would have been a perfectly normal sort of uh, setting and way for Pilate to, to kind of try to maneuver um, between things, especially the Roman and Jewish interests here, uh, the interests of the Sanhedrin, uh, the most prominent representatives of the Jewish temple and religion. Um, they're bringing before Pilate a, a provincial non-citizen, again, as far as Pilate's concerned, um, and they found him guilty of serious religious and political charges. Uh, and so Pilate is going to take this seriously and try to gauge um, exactly who this Jesus is, what his claims are, and uh, what sort of threat the Sanhedrin believes him to be. That's an important point to make, that although there is injustice being done here, Pilate is following the rules that he needs to be following. This isn't quite like Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin previously, where where you can tell they're just out to get the verdict that they want. They've already made up their minds, and they, they bend some of the rules at the very least. Pilate is following his own rules. He doesn't come to a just conclusion, but he is following his own rules. So the charge that's brought, apparently, we don't, we don't hear this, but in, in verse 11, Pilate asks Jesus the question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why is, why is Pilate asking that question? Where's this charge coming from? Uh, well, this charge, uh, yeah, again, coming from uh, the Sanhedrin, coming from the uh, Jewish religious leaders. Uh, you know, Jesus admitted uh, basically as such to them to being the Messiah, to being God's son, um, a royal figure, uh, claiming that there's a future in which he is going to exercise authority. And so, uh, you know, that would have all been uh, wrapped up. And perhaps, you know, perhaps, again, not, not only the official charge, perhaps they wrapped that up for Pilate as here's one who is, you know, claiming to be a king and the king and uh, this, uh, you know, king of the Jews. Um, and, uh, you know, in Luke 23 gives us that context to, to go there for just a little bit. Um, they do accuse Jesus, you know, saying that he himself is Christ, a king, so the Messiah, um, a king. Now, this, this specific title, the king of the Jews, um, in, uh, in the, the uh, secular context, there have been granted by Rome to Herod the Great. Um, it was then taken away, and these prefects, these governors, um, appointed over it, and others tried to lay claim to it. Um, after that, and they were they were all killed in the attempt uh, to try to try to be this king of the Jews. And so we even maybe hear a, a little bit of a sneer in Pilate's voice. When you standing before me in this state, beaten, bound, humbled, you know, are you the uh, the king of the Jews? Uh, and and Jesus, for you know, for his part, doesn't deny it. Right. He says, "You have said so," which sounds like Jesus. Again, he doesn't deny it, but he's not also agreeing with perhaps the way Pilate understands this term, king of the Jews. Now, as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, the, the phrase kingdom of heaven, 
this this matter of God reigning as king and Jesus bringing this reign with with everything that he's doing is is a big deal for Matthew. So this this phrase king of the Jews is we should we should our ears should be perking up even though it's it's been a while in Matthew's gospel since we've seen this title. So so Pastor Hawk, take us into this title for Jesus, King of the Jews, its significance from Jesus' perspective, from the scriptural perspective, and then also maybe, you know, how is how is Pilate hearing this and and what's what's going on here with this title, King of the Jews? Yeah, yeah. So this, yeah, the specific designation uh given for Jesus isn't given to him by anyone else in any other, you know, exact form like this. Um, except interestingly enough, the Magi all the way back in Matthew 2. Uh, so some of the first, the, some of the first Gentiles that we meet in Matthew's Gospel call him uh, the King of the Jews. Um, here at the at the end, this uh, this Gentile governor is calling Jesus the King of the Jews. Um, and yet, you know, as you mentioned, there's this whole emphasis in Matthew on the reign or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so, you know, with those bookends, I think you know, the Holy Spirit was was leading Matthew to, to craft this. Uh, gospel to to help us see everything Jesus uh, saying and doing and and who, even who he is as leading to this conclusion that he is um, the King of the Jews he is this Christ this Messiah um, he is the one bringing this gracious um, end time reign of God on earth uh, helping us see what uh, what the end result of his work is going to be into eternity the restoration um, of all things. Uh, and so the, the Sanhedrin, the council, they understand this, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, is going to be God's, uh, God's regent on earth, the one reigning for him there. So it, it dovetails with their question, you know, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Um, they're getting at the, you know, a similar question maybe from different angles, right? The, uh, the Jewish religious leaders are asking it kind of more theologically, uh, Pilate maybe politically, uh, but it's all kind of wrapped together. Um, and so ultimately, uh, the question of, of Matthew's gospel and the question here, you know, even for Pilate uh, eventually is, well, what kind of king is Jesus? Uh, what kind of kingdom um, is he here to, to give? And for, for Pilate himself, uh, you know, he's going to gauge, is, is it Jesus a political threat? Um, is he a threat to disturbance? Is he a, a threat to uh, civil unrest and disorder um, and things like that? Uh, but in, in Matthew, and and as uh, as you've seen over the uh, the past weeks and months uh, in this study, I'm sure you've seen like this is this is a kingdom of of cleansing, right? Cleansing for the unclean, kingdom of healing for the sick, a kingdom of casting out demons and welcoming sinners with forgiveness. Um, it's a kingdom, uh, as the Beatitudes say, where the poor in spirit, the uh, the mourning, the meek, the hungering for righteousness. Uh, these are the ones who are blessed in this kingdom. It's a a hidden kingdom of service and sacrifice, a kingdom of laying down one's life and taking up the cross. And so all of it is exemplified in its king, Jesus. So is Jesus the king of the Jews? Yes. Is Jesus uh, the king of all people, you know, eventually in the end? Uh, yes. Um, and yet even someone kind of laying behind Jesus' response, you, know, you have said so, um, is Jesus' acknowledgement to Pilate, <laughs> I'm the king of the Jews, uh, but you're not going to understand, you know, what kind of king I am, what kind of kingdom um, I, I reign over. Um, and so that's, you know, perhaps one of the issues that Pilate himself is wrestling with. Here's, here's a, a claim of kingship, but not a king in any sort of way that I would recognize one. Um, certainly not, stand, not certainly not the way he's standing here before me uh, right now. Right. Yet again, there's a moment of irony there that, that Jesus truly is the king of the Jews. And yet to any earthly observer, Pilate included, he does not look like a king at all. And he certainly doesn't he doesn't speak like a king at all. I mean, Pilate even marvels at this point, you know, as as the scene continues on. Don't you don't you hear what they're saying? Why don't you respond? If you if you've got a red letter Bible, you know, this is where this is where the red letters go away for quite a while. And and that's unusual in Matthew's gospel when we've had these long discourses. Here all of a sudden, as Jesus gets close to his death, now he he's quiet. What what's going on here, Pastor Hawk? Uh, you know, it, it brings to mind uh, the uh, the prophecy of, of Isaiah 53, uh, right? He was oppressed, uh, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Uh, so when it came right down to it, uh, this, this suffering servant uh, would be the one who did not respond to injustice, to uh, to, to, to the, the uh, all that was coming against him, like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. Uh, so he opened not his mouth. 
Um, yeah, again, Pilate marvels at this, but, but Jesus isn't answering, not even do a single charge, uh, not even a single word. Uh, yeah, Pilate is greatly amazed, right? Who wouldn't defend himself, right? This is another way, way that Pilate himself is you know, maybe even somewhat confused by Jesus. He's not going to defend himself. Uh, you know, Pilate, I, I think at this point, as, as the rest of the text plays out, maybe already begins to suspect uh, the envy and religious fervor behind Jesus being brought to him rather than any real wrongdoing. Um, so so I, I think Pilate would be wondering, hey, I could, I could maybe even free you pretty quickly <laughs> if you just would, you know, explain yourself and defend yourself. Uh, but Jesus says nothing, and uh, behind that then is, is his control and his desire uh, to follow the Father's will, to know that this um, has to end at the cross, uh, and, uh, um, and to, to see that uh, through to its end. All right. Pilate, Pilate would have expected a king, a true king, to speak up in his own defense, and, and yet Jesus shows his true kingship in the fact that he doesn't, uh, just as the scriptures said he would. So again, if, as we look at this from, a, from the earthly perspective of it, then Pilate, Pilate's looking for Jesus to say something in his own defense, to, to examine the evidence. Jesus won't. So he, he's got to try another angle. And so he turns back to the crowds and, and offers them this matter of, of a choice, that, that here's another prisoner, and, and Pilate asks them, which one do you want me to release to you? What, what's going on in, in Pilate's move next in verses 15 and following? Um, yeah, so again, this is kind of the only source we have for this, this custom, whether uh, here in the Gospels or, or elsewhere, um, this, this Barabbas uh, that is offered. Uh, Matthew describes him as a, a notorious prisoner. Um, you know, for, in Luke, we hear that he's an insurrectionist, uh, maybe one who led a rebellion. Uh, but for, for Matthew's purposes, um, that's not so important. Just that, that he's, a, he's a super bad guy, if you will. <laughs> he's someone that, um, in, in general, probably neither Pilate um, nor the um, Sanhedrin nor the religious leaders really would have uh, wanted back on the streets. And so um, Pilate's move here, again, from a political perspective, seems to be a gauge on just how serious of a threat uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, the council, the religious leaders uh, thought Jesus was. Were they willing to put somebody back on the street that they both knew uh, was a threat to order and stability? And, uh, you know, if so, maybe Pilate's ready to take their word for it, even if he thinks there's some sort of envy or jealousy or just petty rivalry uh, behind it. Um, you know, it says, uh, you know, in our in our text that the, uh, you know, verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. So he's, he's trying to gauge, all right, just what are the factors here uh, for this? Uh, but if, if they choose Jesus to be released, well, then, you know, Pilate's saying, well, I've, then I've called their bluff, exposed their motivation as shallow, trivial, uh, and, you know, we didn't put Barabbas to death for how bad a you know, criminal he was. Uh, why am I going to put Jesus to death if they choose uh, the free Jesus over Barabbas. So, again, from an earthly political perspective, uh, that seems to be uh, Pilate's move here. Let's, let's put someone, let's put someone really dangerous that we both know is dangerous before them, and uh, see what the reaction is. Right, because Barabbas is not the type of guy that certainly Pilate wants out on the streets, and he's not the type of guy that the chief priests, the elders, and the people would want back on the streets because he could, in in the the actions that he might take, he could threaten their whole nation in in the ways that he might read it lead an, an insurrection or, or something to that effect. So Barabbas is is a bad guy. Pilate's essentially calling their bluff, you, you might say, to, to see how serious are they about this. And so he, he puts up Barabbas. What about, and, and just to, and I don't know if you, you looked into this at all, Pastor Hawk, but the, the name Barabbas means son of the father in Aramaic. Is, is that perhaps a bit of irony that Matthew, well, and this is what actually happened, right? Barabbas is the guy. But but in in this choice, that they have the choice between Jesus the Christ or Barabbas, this son of a father, is there a bit of irony that we can see there in, into which one do you want? Hey, um, there, there, there certainly um, has been historically. Uh, uh, many uh, interpreters have have seen that. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, out of the out of the question. Uh, it, it seems to be one of these uh, kind of theological debates. How much how much do we read into that? How much do we not? It, it's certainly what's going on, uh, right? A, a fully guilty, uh, justly imprisoned uh, criminal, um, you know, even even with the name Son of the Father, um, you know, stands to potentially go free, while the true uh, Son of the Father, uh, who is uh, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, who has done nothing wrong in and of himself. 
uh, you know, stands to uh, bear the full weight of uh, both the civil uh, punishment and also the, the wrath of God um, over sins. Um, so, so again, uh, how much we, we do or don't read into it, I think the, the point and, and the point of that theological reflection uh, is the same, uh, that, uh, that the, the son, this, this one son uh, goes free, um, unju- you know, kind of unjustly, if you will, um, while the other one um, is also unjustly uh, condemned uh, to, to the cross. Right, right. And, and even though we wouldn't say Barabbas is a one who believes in Christ or trusts in Christ, perhaps we, we do see a, a bit of a, a picture, even if in a, an ironic way, of, of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that Christ is made to be sin, even though he knew no sin. There's this, mm-hmm. this great exchange that happens here. And again, not to say that Barabbas was a, was a Christian, but to see a, a picture of it in an ironic sense, I, yeah, I, I think that I think that'll preach. You're, you're listening to yeah, Sharper yeah, Iron here I, on World. Go ahead, go ahead. Before I take the break, go for it. Yeah, I was just just, just real quick. Um, yeah, to, to kind of carry with that, that's going to be a theme we pick up again later. That you know, remembering Jesus' death paid for all sins, uh, paid for Barabbas' sins, um, the sins of the crowd. That uh, that whether they come to faith in Him or not, their sins are paid for. Their sins are there with Him on the cross. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Tuesday, April 7th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26 with Pastor Joel Hawk of Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Pastor Hawk, before the break, we left off looking at the choice that's given. Pilate presents to the, the chief priests of the people, Barabbas or Jesus. And, and we've already talked about how, how Pilate knows that there's envy going on. The chief priests are doing this out of envy. And, and Pilate's got another reason behind this. He talks, Matthew brings up this dream that his wife had that she relayed to Pilate. What's, what do we see there with this dream of Pilate's wife? Uh, yeah, again, we don't know much besides what Matthew tells us, so we, we can kind of take it as it is uh, in the text and uh, uh, go from there. And more irony at work here, um, you know, Pilate's wife uh, says, had nothing to do with that righteous man, uh, for I have suffered much today because of him in a dream. Uh, again, the irony that this, this Gentile, you know, likely pagan woman understands more about Jesus uh, than his own people, his own religious leaders. She sees and knows his uh, righteousness at the very, you know, again at the very least in uh, uh, in this political context, if not you know, overall uh, theological context. But she declares him a righteous man uh, when no one else uh, here is, is willing to do so. It seems uh, we don't know anything about the content of the dream. Anything would be uh, just pure speculation. We, we you know we do we can't tell that hey she's she's encouraging Pilate to. Uh, uh, to declare Jesus innocent, or at least uh, set him free, however he can. Uh, that's that's the way she interpreted whatever her dream was, um, anyway. Uh, but uh, but as we see, right, Pilate does not uh, heed this for uh, for various reasons. Uh, and so so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell uh, with uh, with the dream and uh, and where it is. You know, what do we do? We want to dream up more or, or look look behind it more sometimes. Uh, yeah, uh, but we we can only go with what the text tells us here. But but generally, with the with what the text does tell us, and again, not that we would know the content, but but the way Matthew has yep. presented others in in the gospel who have received dreams, like the Magi or Joseph. I mean, it's been a while since we've we've gotten these in Matthew's gospel, but they are there. Generally, we should. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we compare those dreams, and and now here's another dream showing up. It would seem that this is a a positive sense that that this is. Pilate's wife has it right, in other words. Matthew Matthew would present a, that to us, I think. Yes, yes, definitely so. Uh, uh, that when, when dreams do appear in uh, in this uh, gospel, God, God's behind them, 
uh, in general and, and working uh, you know, one way or the other um, with that. Um, and, and here it kind of serves the purpose to, uh, to again, yeah, reinforce for us the notion that you know, Jesus is what, uh, uh, what even uh, God reveals for this, uh, for this woman to uh, him to be, a righteous man uh, that uh, will be unjustly condemned if condemned. Uh, and uh, you know, God's, God's appealing to, to Pilate uh, in this way, uh, but also right, God foreknows and has, has seen how this is all going to play out, that Pilate uh, you know, will reject this warning uh, and, uh, and continue down the path, uh, which will, again, fulfill God's plans and God's purposes uh, for, for the Christ. So this dream of, of Pilate's wife does not persuade Pilate in, in the end. Rather, that, so having, it's, we got a bit of, verse 19 is almost a, a bit of an interlude there in, in this scene. Verse 20 takes us back to what's what's happening right in front of Pilate. So the chief priests, the elders, they are there with the crowd. They persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. How do we see this? I mean, that, that's pretty strong language, Pastor Hawk. How does this scene play out? Um, yeah, very, very strong language, uh, uh, as you said, and, and you know, calling for his uh, um, execution twice. Uh, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Uh, you know, for, for some of us, uh, you know, the, the question might be, well, how do they persuade? Uh, persuade the crowds in this way. Uh, we think back to Palm Sunday, and and uh, you know whether it was the same crowd or different crowd or, or a mixture of of both. Uh, it does seem to be a bit of turn of a turn for the crowds in Matthew. The crowds are generally marveling at Jesus. They're following him around. Um, they're not held up by Matthew as paragons of faith um, ever. People have to kind of step away from the crowds uh, to to express faith in Jesus. Um, but uh, uh, but they do seem you know generally positively disposed towards him. Uh, one one possibility is if you think back to Matthew 23, Jesus gives some pretty scathing rebukes uh, towards the Pharisees and religious leaders. And while the crowds are willing to kind of follow around Jesus, they also uh, were generally positively disposed towards the Pharisees. They were willing to give them the seats of honor, willing to give them the, the special greetings that Jesus kind of calls them out for hypocrisy and their craving of it. But you get this sense that they're positively disposed toward them. Maybe they didn't take um, Jesus' rebuke um, of them too well. Uh, but but again, uh, you're going back to kind of the major themes, right? The crowds never fully you know get Jesus or his identity um, or mission. They marvel at him, uh, but never as much more than a prophet. Uh, so uh, you know the chance that the Pharisees had to turn them against him uh, maybe doesn't seem uh, quite as stunning um, as first glance. Although uh, certainly to call for someone's death <laughs> never an easy and light thing to do, uh, for sure. Right. Yeah. The- if if one of Jesus' own twelve was willing to betray him for money, then it, it's not too hard to to imagine that these crowds could have been persuaded. As you said, that there was a mixture of of people, and and two, it, it's easy for us looking back on the text to put ourselves over these crowds in in judgment to say I I wouldn't have done that, but but probably that's not the right move to make, right? Yeah, um, as I was you know reading this and pondering it, I actually was reminded of uh, of one of Luther's uh, Christmas Day sermons. Uh, he he speaks against the thought in, in that context. Well, if I had been there uh, when Jesus was born, I, I I wouldn't have let him be born in a stable or a manger. I would have welcomed him and his family in a, a much better way. Uh, but but Luther exhorts his hearers, you know, had you been at Bethlehem, you would have paid as little attention to Christ as they did. Kind of <laughs> Luther's kind of brash style. Um, and so, yeah, it's right for us. You know, let's not be too hasty to judge the crowd or or anyone, right? We meet in the scriptures who didn't believe uh, when Jesus walked the earth, uh, because we we know our theology and, and Jesus teaching about where faith comes from and how this knowledge is given. Um, it's only revealed by Jesus' Father in heaven. It's, it's hidden from the uh, wise and understanding, uh, yet revealed to little children only by the gracious will of the Father and anyone to whom the Son chooses uh, to reveal the Father. Uh, so it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit, a work that uh, in our in our hearts and, and minds, are, in our sin, we can resist and reject uh, that anyone would believe in Jesus uh, himself anyway. So, uh, yeah, to, to stand in judgment over those who don't believe, whether in, in the text of Scripture or certainly today, uh, right, uh, we don't want to stand with that posture. We want to come with humble gratitude for, for our faith and, uh, and, and certainly today to appeal to others uh, and invite them to uh, to reconsider um, and then certainly as we approach the text to recognize ourselves and our sin uh, that, uh, that also led Jesus to the cross. 
right? This this question of responsibility or blame for Jesus' death is going to take center stage as the text moves forward. So the the chief priests have persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas and and to tell Pilate, let Jesus be crucified, which was just an awful death. And and it seems that that Pilate, and this is maybe where we can reflect a bit on, on Pilate. It seems that Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that justice would demand Jesus to be released, but he doesn't end up doing that. It, instead, we, we get this, this iconic scene where, where Pilate washes his hands. What, what's going on here, Pastor Hawk? Yeah, he, he washes his hands. Uh, just to back up you know, to verse 23, he says, yeah, why? What evil has he done? Right? Why, what, does he, what has he done deserving of death? Uh, but then, uh, you know, verse 24 says that a riot is a riot is beginning, uh, and so Pilate, uh, you know, is needing to calm the riot, uh, wanting to keep uh, uh, some peace and order uh, in 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 the, the the in Jerusalem there. And so, you know, kind of more irony here in that in, in Matthew 26:5, the chief priests and elders had wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him, but they said, well, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. Uh, the same word used as for riot here, uh, lest there be an uproar among the people. But but here they are uh, giving rise to a riot, giving rise to an uproar in order to seal uh, Jesus' fate. Uh, and then uh, again, Pilate takes the um, expedient route uh, for for him. He says, okay, the death of this one man, uh, again from his perspective, uh, uh, a relative nobody, even if he claimed to be king of the Jews, one who had obviously no power, obviously no followers. Uh, again, from Pilate's perspective, he says, well, this death is better than a riot, which could lead to, to more death. And uh, you know, some people even think maybe his own position was a little bit tenuous um, at this time. He says, you know, I, you know, okay, fine. It's not just, uh, but uh, but the greater justice for Pilate's uh, um, eyes is, is to do, let this happen. And so he tries to exonerate uh, himself. Uh, but as, as you mentioned in the opening, right, he's the governor. <laughs> he is there to govern. Uh, whatever he does or doesn't do um, from a human perspective is on him. Uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders, they could not crucify. Pilate himself had to give the order and send the soldiers uh, to do uh, the task. It has to happen under his authority. Um, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's trying to make a show of things, maybe even trying to appease his own conscience. Um, you know, but this is his custom uh, that, that led to the, the choice of Barabbas. This is his tactic uh, that, uh, that he placed before them. Um, and he takes uh, he takes the politically expedient route, it seems, over the truly just one. Um, again, that that great irony and reversal for us that that this injustice leads to our ultimate uh, justice before God and justification uh, before His throne. Uh, so, yeah, Pilate's not innocent uh, by any means just because he washes his hands. Uh, that's for sure. Right. It, it it's an empty action as it's as it's portrayed. It's and it it doesn't it just doesn't well. Uh, Pardon the pun, I guess. It doesn't hold water. What what Pilate does, he his this washing of the hands, and and I, I I'll give you credit for this one. He, maybe if he had washed his hands for twenty seconds, then then it would have t- taken. I, that 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 was yours. I don't want to take credit for that one. It was it was a good. Yeah, one. there I you go. No, no. Yeah, um, I don't I'll give you the credit because it was yours. Uh, it was uh, I, that's that's good, right? I mean, but no, no, the this action of Pilate's, while maybe tr- easing his own conscience in some way. It doesn't make him innocent. He he still bears the guilt for failing to govern, for failing to give justice where where justice should have been done. And and yes, this is God's will, and this is what what God foreknew. But at the same time, that doesn't that that is not an excuse for Pilate to sin, for Pilate to do wrong. He still bears the guilt. But as as the text moves on, then we also would be wrong to say it's all. Pilate's fault. And, and so as, as the scene continues, this matter of Jesus' blood takes center stage. Pilate uses the term, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people pick up on this and they say, and, and again, words of, of irony, it seems, his blood be on us and on our children. How, do, how should we understand these things, Pastor Hawk? Uh, yeah, and so there's you know some historical you know interpretation and and you know moves that have uh, you know come from this uh, right. Pilate alone holds the true human power. Yeah, he's you know the the uh, the, the crowds have kind of you know, seemingly forced his hands, even though they they weren't really forced. 
Um, but uh, you know, neither are the crowds. Well, Pilate's not not true in his saying, well, "I'm innocent," and, and the crowds aren't totally true in saying, "Well, all of all of the guilt can fall on us either." They're they, they're not solely to blame um, for this uh, for this either. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the the blood of Jesus. Who who is the blood of Jesus on? Uh, here we see another one of those gracious ironies. Um, I believe that Jesus' blood is on them and is on their children. It is on you know even over. It is, does even cover over Pilate. Um, and it is shed for all of them that they might you know, ultimately believe and be saved uh, by him as uh, the king of the Jews. Um, you know, any, any of those in the crowd, uh, even after Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, would have been welcome and free to become his disciples, uh, not unlike uh, the, the turn and conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus uh, and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we see and hear this, uh, you know, after, after Pen- Peter's Pentecost sermon. Uh, he, he ends, you know, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, um, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh, you know, and, and again, we can say, well, is that kind of a, a general statement of, of the people or other people in that crowd that Peter's uh, preaching to uh, that were in this crowd as well? Um, either way, the people then are cut to the heart, and they say, "Well, brothers, what shall we do?" Uh, you know, we do understand this this guilt uh, and, and this shame in this. Uh, and Peter says to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And he, he says, the pro- kind of echoing this, he says, "The promise is for you and for your children." Uh, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So uh, Peter kind of brings it back uh, to them and says, uh, you declared uh, his His blood to be on you and your children. Uh, in one way, God and his grace is willing to place it on you in another way for your forgiveness and your life, even if uh, even if and even though you were uh, part of the, the earthly reason for this to happen. Hmm. I, I'd never caught that connection in Peter's sermon before, but you're right. I mean, it's the same the same phraseology that Peter uses there for you and for your children, just as they declared they were willing to accept the guilt. Now Peter says, here's the forgiveness for you and for your children. And and that same blood would be upon us as well. I suppose in, in both senses, right? Right, Pastor Hawk, that we would be guilty, right? This is our our guilt, our sin put Jesus there, and yet he sheds his blood for our forgiveness also. Uh, completely right. Uh, it's uh, a theme in our hymnody uh, as well that uh, um, that you know, my sins, uh, you know, held Jesus on the cross. It's, it's my sins that uh, uh, that uh, you know Jesus was paying for on the cross, and so yeah, his his death is on is on me, uh, me personally as a sinner uh, was the reason Jesus had to die. Uh, if, I, if I did not have sinned, if the world had not sinned. Uh, you know that would not have been been necessary uh, in a sense. You know, we don't know any other world <laughs> right now, so so it was necessary for us in our salvation. Uh, but then, as First John one declares, right now the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Although my my sin my sin led to His blood being shed, His shed blood now cleanses me uh, from my sin. Uh, and as we uh, move into Holy Week, and uh, uh, depending on where people are at, <laughs> their, their reception of the Lord's Supper may be uh, greater or less uh, able with all that's going on in our, our world today. Uh, we do want to look to the Lord's Supper, where, uh, where we, we receive the blood of Jesus uh, in, you know, in, with, and under uh, the, the wine delivered to us for our salvation. Uh, in, because in the rest of the New Testament here, to have the blood of Jesus on you, um, to even to drink his blood here is to have the gracious uh, blessing of salvation uh, for you. So when we when we read phrases like this in, in all the New Testament, we're supposed to see grace. We're supposed to see God's uh, God's forgiveness at work. Uh, and so uh, we want to we do want to move there uh, as we consider even this uh, this declaration of the crowd. Yeah, and and it's it's this is the Passover too that that's being celebrated right here. And so think about what happened with the Passover. Where was the blood of the lamb painted? It was painted upon the houses of the the people of Israel. And here now is the blood of the lamb. And again, they're asking for guilt, but but he is shedding his blood to to paint over people for forgiveness. If I can quote from an Easter hymn during during this the season of of Lent and Holy Week in in Luther's Easter hymn Christ Jesus lay in death strong bands he he has this marvelous text here our true paschal lamb we see whom God so freely gave us he died on the accursed tree so strong his love to save us see his blood now marks our door 
faith points to at death passes or in Satan cannot harm us. Picking up on all those, those themes that we've been talking about of Jesus' blood marking us for the forgiveness of our sins. So, Pastor Hawk, with, we've still got about eight minutes here. And so now in verse 26, the verdict's going to be carried out. They've asked for Barabbas. Pilate's going to give them Barabbas. He releases Barabbas. And before he delivers Jesus to be crucified, he scourges Jesus. This is a particularly brutal punishment, right? Yes, yes. And it's, it's a fairly, I don't want to say it's a technical word, but it does describe a specific punishment, a specific judicial penalty, a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip, uh, with uh, embedded pieces of bone and metal um, to, to, to kind of plug a, a CPH product uh, uh, it's very fully described as much of the of the passion narrative is in, in the book. He was crucified. Um, this was this was an awful form of punishment. It was intended to be just it was terribly severe, uh, but just severe enough to leave you alive so that you could then, especially in Jesus' case, you know, go to the cross and and further torment uh, so you could feel it. So it was uh, they knew kind of yeah, and, and the Romans uh, unfortunately were very uh, good at it. Uh, they knew what they were doing. Uh, they they knew kind of how far they could go with most of their uh, prisoners in order to kind of you know, again do as do as, as as do their worst here, um, but leave more uh, to be suffered uh, by their by their prisoners. Um, you know, you you would be stripped. Uh, you know, our 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 pictures and depictions of Jesus in this time and on the cross are possibly a little sanitized. Uh, he he could have been at various points fully naked, uh, very humiliated. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know having deep wounds and gashes uh, in his body uh, from uh, from the whips in in many directions. So uh, it, it was painful. Uh, if any listener has ever seen the Passion of the Christ, uh, um, I, I don't believe it was too much of an exaggeration. Perhaps the perhaps the uh, the screenshots and <laughs> and cinematography there were were exaggerated and unnecessary. But uh, but the depiction, I, I don't believe, uh, from what I understand, was exaggerated all that much. Right. The the Romans were, were very good at punishing people, and not that's not a good thing, but it, they, they were very efficient at it, perhaps is the way I, way I should say it. They, they knew what they were doing, and they didn't, they didn't miss. They didn't miss. So they, Pilate has Jesus scourged, this, this awful beating, and then he delivers Jesus to be crucified, which crucifixion was, was bad enough in and of itself. What, what about this term? I think we, we talked about this previously, that matter that Jesus was delivered over to be crucified. There's there's maybe a bit of irony there, too. Uh, yeah, irony, and so it's, it's the theme uh, that uh, very often comes back as, as the New Testament writers um, talk about uh, what happened to Jesus. It's, it's this word uh, that they use, he was delivered um, over to death. Um, even, even Peter in that Pentecost sermon, again, uses that uh, uh, kind of back to a phrase I used, a uh, portion of the verse I used at the beginning uh, here, he was delivered up um, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, he was uh, delivered, and, and the New Testament never makes this exact uh, play on words, but I think in English it works. He was delivered uh, for our deliverance. Um, Jesus is delivered over to die, and so that we are delivered from our sin, delivered from our shame, delivered from our guilt, uh, delivered from death. Um, in, in English, it works. The New Testament uses other words, but uh, that's what the New Testament wants us to see. Uh, like Romans 4, uh, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Uh, Romans 8, he who, does not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, but delivered um, him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, Galatians 2 reminds us, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself, uh, delivered himself up for me. So then I get even there, another reminder that Jesus is in control. Jesus, Jesus is delivered up, uh, but he's the one delivering uh, himself into death as well. This is not, uh, again, he's not caught up in a tragedy. He is in control, um, in command. He is uh, allowing himself to be delivered up to be the king of the Jews, uh, to be the king of all people, because this is how he is going to uh, bring about his reign. Uh, you know, Ephesians 5, 2 brings that up perfectly. Walk in love, uh, uh, brothers, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus isn't helpless here. Um, this is exactly how uh, he, he knew it would happen, exactly how the Father planned it would happen for us and for our deliverance uh, from all that stood against us. To use the language that Jesus does in, in John's Gospel, where he, he talks about, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I take it back up again. He does this willingly. And and you're right, the, the English word delivered, while it's not this way in, in the Greek text, it does allow us to, to d- describe this in various ways, that, that yes, Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified, and yet Jesus is the one delivering himself over for our deliverance, and then to, to deliver to us all of his gifts, life, forgiveness, salvation, his his body and blood in, in the Holy Supper, as we were just saying. So yeah, that, that English word deliverer does a, does a lot of work here for us. And, and we see that that gracious irony here as, as well as you said. Pastor Hawk, with about two minutes left, uh, just wrap up the morning for us, summarize everything we've talked about. Yeah, I think the, the good news in this text here is that uh, even though it's uh, the word, the phrase is used um, in an ironic way and uh, kind of even a downplaying way by Pilate, um, here we see Jesus, the King of the Jews, um, the one who is your King, the King of all people, um, as the Lord's Messiah, uh, as uh, as the Son of God, he was delivered um, into death uh, so that uh, his righteousness, uh, as you just said, might be delivered uh, to you, to us. Uh, to the world to be received in faith, um, and so ultimately that you might be delivered from sin and death into his kingdom, uh, that you might uh, live in his kingdom in righteousness, innocence, uh, and blessedness uh, forever, beginning here by faith um, and into his eternal kingdom, uh, which is the the end goal of of all of this uh, as well, that we live with Jesus as our gracious king, uh, our true king uh, forever in his perfect kingdom. Pastor Joel Hawk is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Pastor Hawk, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. It was great to be with you again. Throughout the text, injustice abounds. Pilate refuses to govern. The chief priests are acting out of envy and hatred. The crowds are are persuaded by, by these men. Injustice is done. Jesus is the only innocent one, and yet he is the one who's sent to crucifixion. But he's doing that for justice for you, for justification for you. Your sins are put upon him, and his blood, his innocent blood, is put upon you to mark you as his own, to make you a member of his kingdom, to forgive you, to wash you clean. That is the blood that that you receive along with his body and holy communion, that, that body and blood that delivered to you what Jesus did here in being delivered up for your forgiveness. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.